Hey there, welcome to Subject Matter Season 4, where we're discovering how to build a strong company culture. We're learning from fast-moving founders and CEOs and how their cultures make customers want to work with them and talent want to work for them, in some cases completely remotely. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and our team is dedicated to supporting B2B leaders to build aligned company cultures at scale. And now, let's get into today's episode. Today's interview is with Rakesh Kamath, co-founder and CTO of Jozu Inc., an edtech company focused on transforming written skills assessment through the use of AI and NLP, or natural language processing. Rakesh has 20 years experience, focused mostly on SaaS product engineering, and was formerly Director of Digital Strategic Innovation at BMO Bank of Montreal. In this interview, we learn why being vague and unopinionated in your company's mission statement leads to more churn in your talent. We learn the importance of creating a safe space at work to let intelligent people thrive. And we learn how Rakesh learned to step out of the way of his talent and let them deliver the problems and solutions that would serve them best. This is a great interview packed with lots of penetrating insights, and I hope that you enjoy. Rakesh, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Ben. Good talking with you. So I thought we could start with a technology product that I know you're a big fan of, and that product is Grammarly. Could you explain to everyone why you are such a big fan of Grammarly and what it is this product gets right in your eyes? Coming from a product background, it's a really tough proposition and therefore on the flip side magic when you take really sophisticated technology and are able to deliver to your customers in a way that makes sense to them, right? And it's immediately useful. I think Grammarly is one of those products that has made writing skills come to the forefront and become a critical part of everyday workflow in your sales communication, in your marketing communication, right? And behind the scenes, they I'm pretty sure they use really sophisticated uh, natural language processing and ML technologies, which we also use. So given that our products are kind of in the same domain, but for completely different audiences, I'm able to admire what they're doing. So it seems like there's this balance between having a sophisticated product on the back end and simple execution on the front end. Could you maybe speak to how you think about that, where I know, as you say, you're using natural language processing and artificial intelligence with your core product at Jozu, but then it has to have a very simple interface for the teachers and schools that you're working with. How do you think about balancing sophistication with simplicity? A mistake that computer scientists and engineers such as myself make is they come at every problem like it's a nail and they have the hammer versus taking a more careful customer-centric approach where you take time to understand what the customer wants, what their core issues are, what their core problems are, instead of just trying to start solving the problem you think they have. So for example, in the case of Jozu, even before we launched the product, which was launched, I think, in 2016, we took a good year out to do a project called Technology and Education, where we surveyed, I'm going to say, 1,000 educators, so teachers, admins, people in the education domain, 
out of which we did live interviews for about 400 teachers, documenting and listening to them on everything from how they use technologies, which tools they use, what critical assessment problems they they face, which tools they face them in, so that we had an understanding of the digital ecosystem. So Carl, my co-founder, and I, we are, neither of us are educators. We don't have anything to do with pedagogy or education, right? It just so happens that a couple of close friends of Carl's were teachers. And then uh, during summer months in, uh, in Toronto, we would try to hang out with them, and they always had some assessment to grade or some assignments you know, to get feedback to the students on. And they used to be busier than us, and we thought we were busy as startup people. And playfully, we just started spending some time with them on the weekend, looking at it more from an academic hobby perspective, trying to understand the pain points they go through. And we found that assessment and grading in particular is a very complex process. It involves five tools to get a round of assessment done. It's excessively manual. The tasks are repetitive. They still lack automation. Super time confusing, right? So it takes a teacher about, I want to say, 19 hours per assignment, which combined with in-classroom work for 30 students, you can imagine what kind of a load that is. And the other thing we found was, unlike the rest of the world, there's no concept of real-time intelligence in education, in the classroom. So you and I probably use about 50 tools a day, uh, ranging from Salesforce to Gmail. And even features we may not necessarily consider important are enabled by artificial intelligence and machine learning, right? If you're to go write an email in Gmail today, you'll see autocomplete suggestions. Do we really need them? But no, it's got, but it's gotten to the level where NLP and ML are so democratized that it's available in every mouse click that we perform on the internet. But we just did not find that availability of next-gen technology in education. So I think Carl and I started with the arrogance that we can bring NLP and ML and applications of that to technology. But during our conversations with our teacher friends, I think we were brought down a little to earth because they kind of explained the ecosystem. We could see the complexity. So we knew we had to invest in research. So we actually spent six months to a year doing this research that I talked about, analyzed the data that came out from it, discussed, went back to our teacher friends, kind of figured out what to do. And then one day we just felt like we had a product. And our premise was, while we genuinely care about education and about students learning, we still want it to be a product that is adopted by the teachers and the schools because it works, not because it's available. So we wanted to make sure that the product that we create use the same kind of product-driven adoption that you would find in B2C or B2B products. So we kind of focused on building a product that, that is intuitive, that would make sense to the teachers and students and would be available where they already are versus them having to use a net new product. So we started with building add-ons for Google Docs, Google Classroom, and other learning management systems where the teachers and students already do their work. So we have always been customer-centric. So we came at it from their problem. The first problem we solve is we give them intuitive tooling 
so that they could perform written assessments in Google Docs. And we would just plug in and consume their written submissions. And then we could run our NLP and ML algorithms in there. So we never came at it from the perspective said, let's start with our technology and see what we can apply, uh, what we can do in the education space. We instead took time to understand what the problems are in the assessment workflow and then build tooling around those problems and then enable those, that tooling with NLP and ML. Yeah, and something to point out there is the relationship that you and your co-founder, Carl, had to the industry going into it. I think a, a common pattern that we see with founders on subject matter is that they have deep industry expertise and experience on their niche before they start the company. And this is the case for a former guest from this season and a mutual friend of ours, Chris Hull. Chris was a history teacher for over a decade before he became chief product officer at Otis, and another ed tech platform. But you're not like that at all. As you said, you, you didn't have any educational experience going in. And so what I find really interesting here is that you've been able to grapple with this problem in a really real way and obviously build a company around it, but you don't have that personal anchor of prior experience. And it seems to me the bridge that you have used to close that gap between experience that other people might have and really caring about the problem is understanding your users. It's going on this tour to speak to all those teachers, asking thousands and thousands of questions, collecting all these data points. And when you start with that user-first perspective, it mitigates the need to have a kind of emotional pull into the problem that you're solving because you have all this objective data which shows you that there's a very real opportunity in the first place. Absolutely. So we work with Chris almost on a week weekly basis with his company. And we are always in awe of his thinking because he seems to have a pulse on what teachers and students and administrators require that we don't have. But at the same time, we appreciate our own perspective because we have that naivety that basically makes us ask the dumb questions and then solve and bring solutions to the problem that probably somebody in education might not have, right? So I can appreciate both perspectives you know, we are seeing this trend in technology where there are more people like me than Chris. And uh, that's only because we cannot all be Chris. But we are able to take a shot at the same problems or ancillary problems and work together as we are with Chris. Yeah, I think the, there's something uh, important to underscore there as well is that there's no perspective that's better or worse than another. It's just different. And the nice thing about the combination and having exposure to someone like Chris is you're getting that deep industry expertise, but you're combining it with someone who is an outside observer as well. I'd be interested to dig into that a little bit in, in terms of the perspectives that you find valuable. So given that Jozu is an education technology, what are the kind of perspectives that you might look to facilitate that is outside of edtech that you think could help you gain a valuable lens or insight into your business, but that falls out of the kind of natural scope of edtech? Something I intuitively believe, and we are trying to apply at Jozu, is that 
if a product is as good as it says it is, then it must be a successful product from every single lens, from all practices. And by all practices, I mean not just the product building, not just from the product management, but also from the sales perspective, from the product marketing perspective. Because if you're building a product that is great, then the market must demand it. There must be a need in the market for it. I don't think I've always seen that perspective in EdTech. So EdTech seems to take one of two approaches. One is build a good enough product and then throw millions of dollars at it in sales, right? So sales cycles and education technology are notoriously long, like two, three years. And so by definition, EdTech companies have large sales teams. At the cost, I would say, of a better product. It's very common to find a really staid EdTech product that looks like Facebook from the 1990s when Facebook didn't exist. I'm totally aware. But you see that they have a very sophisticated sales mechanism or sales workflow and sales book to make sure those sales happen. But by the time they reach uh, profitability, it's three, four funding cycles deep. And the second approach is not-for-profit, which is they're funded more by charities and they try to be enablers of education, but I'm not sure that's the best way to build a product because the right incentives to build the best product are not there. So we have arrogantly taken on the premise that we can actually change student outcomes. So we are very mission-driven, but we want to be a profit-driven company, right? So we think we can actually be successful in the market as well. And we've taken that many shots at it. At tech, we knew getting in is going to be difficult, but we have not been afraid to change our premise as well as our business model. Maybe this is the third business model we have right now, the successful one. But before that, we have taken two or three other completely different shots at getting there. So the perspectives that ultimately drive both Carl and I, but especially me, is that we listen to a lot of market voices and we are driven by the best practices of the the startup world and technology industry. Something you have mentioned a couple of times so far is this idea of moving or being motivated uh, with arrogance in mind. You shared that you and Carl started with arrogance when you initially started Jozu, and you said there that you can arrogantly assume, or you are arrogantly assuming that you can change student outcomes by virtue of your your product. I've always associated arrogance as an undesirable characteristic, but you're adding this interesting slant to it, which is being able to move without having all the answers. And there's this kind of not carefree, but um, do you know the uh, the analogy from James Altucher where instead of ready, aim, fire, he says, ready, fire, aim. So you, you fire first <laughs> and then figure out where you're going. It's, it's kind of like yeah. that. So I wonder if that is, if there's anything there which resonates as to how your approach to building the, the product and, and being able to move quickly using this arrogant mentality. Yeah, I use the word arrogant, but maybe what I mean is being unreasonably bold, maybe, but it doesn't sound as fun, 
uh, or as opinionated. Right? <laughs> it's not as punchy, but it's I, not I as punchy. People think of ignorance as a bad word. I think ignorance is a critical part of a thinking process. If there's no ignorance, there's no ignorance to solve. But willful ignorance is a completely different thing, which is in spite of seeing data to the contrary and evidence to the contrary, if you keep on believing what you want to continue believing, that's willful ignorance. And that's obviously a very stupid thing to do. But ignorance is a starting point for learning. I think of arrogance the same way, which is nothing really stops us from taking a shot at something, uh, both at on a day-to-day -day basis. Our team just picks up and starts doing stuff without really thinking about whether it's, uh, whether it's supposed to be intimidating. Is that the right thing to do? Other teams have 50 people doing it. Why are we doing it with three people? Those kind of questions. We really don't let that stop us. The thing that happens when you start that way is when you get evidence later on that something is indeed difficult, that it is a tough problem to solve, two things have happened. One is you have taken enough, you have done enough learning to be way further along than somebody who has not started. So you're in a better position to solve the problem. And the second thing that happens is because you're not so invested in it, you're going to continue, you're likely going to continue and try to find the ultimate solution to the problem, even if it's not the solution or the hypothesis you started with. The third thing that we have to be careful as is even if you start with arrogance, you've got to stop and listen when you have evidence to the contrary. Otherwise, you'll be solving the wrong problem. So when the teachers, when we did our initial research with uh, a thousand teachers, the hypothesis we had at the beginning and what we decided to build at the end were very, very different looking, like completely different products. Our, the product we were planning and the product we built were so different, they were not even in the same, same vicinity. So we were building, when we started the technology and education project, our product was standalone. It was yet another product which had all these sophisticated technologies uh, powering the uh, automatic assessment, we had these extremely intuitive user features. We had built a UX guide. We had built designs, all of that. But as a result of the research project we did, we actually threw that away. And we began as an add-on that's within Google Docs, which was a way more minimal shot, way less ambitious sounding to us than what we started but we let the data kind of dictate us and we didn't let just the fact that everybody does this in technology dictate what we built. It kind of reminds me of this idea that we have all these shiny toys that we could potentially use, all these gadgets and gizmos and widgets, uh, but ultimately we just need to cut through and listen to the data, listen to the people that we're actually talking to. Now, this is a, a nice segue this idea of listening to something else I wanted to talk about with you today, which was the idea of radical candor. Now, maybe for uh, you could start for those of us who haven't heard of radical candor by giving a, a short primer to it. And then I'd be interested if you could share what impact radical candor has had on your approach when you were initially starting Jozu and hiring engineers. When we started Jozu, we first started hiring people in 2016, I'm going to say. And 
when we started the company, we were very intensely driven. I especially was somebody who thought he had all the answers. And then I just needed people to execute that <laughs> that vision, right? Mm-hmm. If you were to ever meet Carl, my co-founder, you would know that he's exactly the opposite. He's a very caring person. He's uh, way more empathetic in his approach and makes for a way better leader at any given day. But my approach was, hey, I'm here to build the perfect product. I know how to do it. I'm going to hire really smart people, and then I'm going to tell them exactly what to do. Now, anybody listening to the way I've summarized it will know that that's exactly the wrong approach to do things. There's a very uh, now very well-known line from Steve Jobs that uh, I think in an interview where a candidate asked him, what would you like me to do? What are you hiring this role to do? I think Steve Jobs said, if I knew what I wanted to do, why would I hire you? So the idea being that you hire smart people and then you step out of the way. So that's got to be your hiring philosophy. I obviously didn't take that, but I ended up hiring really smart people. And I think as those smart people would tell you in year one, it was particularly and unnecessarily intense because the approach there was this is, there was this mirage of a meritocracy where your efforts and how well you perform dictate the outcome. And if you don't perform up to a artificial expectation, then you must not be doing well enough. You're not doing your best. And that's obviously not how people live their lives, right? Because lives are way more than what you do at work and how many lines of code you write and how many users come in through the funnel. Life is, for you to be successful at work, you've got to have you got to have a safe space. If you're an intelligent person, you perform best and most creatively when you have a safe space at work to come, that you're able to go back at a reasonable time, that you're able to enjoy your evening, you know, go on a couple of trails on the weekend and come back refreshed. But something is demanded of you. Like you are made to see that your efforts matter, that they are going towards something significant and powerful. So... A couple of years into the process, one day I came in and I could see the impact on the team of my behavior. So at that time, I saw the people working at their desks and I could see that, hey, I personally care about every one of them, but do they know that I care about them? And do they know that there's a safe space here that they're okay to take shots and then do better? Or are we just going to continue the way we are where I come up with something and the team executes it versus the team coming up with something and them executing it? So that's where the the philosophy of radical candor came in. It's not an original thought. I first came across this author. I want to say her name is Kim Scott. She's to, I think she's a former Googler. I came across her on, on a podcast similar to this one. I think uh, Jason Calacanis runs... This week in startups, and I think she had appeared there. And basically, what she says is you can care personally and then challenge directly, which means if you show people on a day to day day to day basis that you care about them, but do not flinch in giving feedback, that combination can be magical and that can be a very enabling place to be for, for people working together. So I was doing part of it right, but in a pretty 
aggressive way, which is giving feedback. But if that's not accompanied by me showing them on a day-to-day basis that I actually genuinely care about them, then really the impact is negative, if anything. So the radical candor philosophy is basically to say, make sure your team knows that you care personally, and then they will be able to listen to challenging feedback directly and be able to act on it and would want to act on it themselves. I like this underlying thread through what you've shared there of empowering the team to make the decisions. So having them act on the feedback, having them come up with the ideas. I like this uh, this framework. I think it actually might be from another Googler. They're coming up a bit today. But um, this idea that leaders are there to decide and leave. So you're there to make the decision if people are split, but then you leave and let them go away and, and do their thing. And part of what Radical Candor, it sounds like, allowed you to do was get out of your own way and say, actually, we've got all these brains, let's use them to come up with the ideas rather than me, which in a, I I would hypothesize probably allowed you to do your work better in subsequent years because you then had more mind space to focus on the problems that you were oriented on, knowing that the team had the space and the resources to be able to ideate the problems themselves and, and the solutions to them as well. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, it's been a supercharger because I often find myself now coming up with an approach. So I still do part of the product management, product definition function. And these days, I find that when I come up with an idea, there are two or three other people in the room who have come at the same problem from another lens and many times have a better solution to the problem right? A more elegant way of doing things, whether it's a technical issue or a product solution, they seem to have other perspectives because three brains are way better than one at solving a problem. But you're right. At the end of the day, I get to basically say, you know, out of these three solutions, this seems to be the best one. We make the decision and walk away. And, you know, we have a way better solution at the end. You're absolutely right. Why do you think that more brains are better than one at solving a problem. I've heard kind of both schools of philosophy of the, like on one, the one hand, the great man theory of, of history mm-hmm. suggesting like the singular thinker kind of has the answer and then the other leans more towards consensus. And it sounds like you're on the side of group thought. So I'd be interested in hearing why you side with that school of thought. Actually, I'm, I'm not for group thought. I'm okay. more for group thinking. We all bring our individual perspectives to an issue. Whether it's a product problem, whether it's a life issue, we come at something from our own perspectives and accompanying those perspectives are our blind spots. There is no way for you to see your blind spots because by definition, you're blind to them. Right. So the minute you walk into a room and you have four or five people who are qualified to be in that room. So it's not like everybody gets to sit in, but people we have identified in our team who have product thinking or have achieved product thinking or have experience with the product or have, because we are a technology product or may have input on how to build that product. We want to make sure everybody is around that table. Those conversations do not start with open questions. Those conversations start with, proposals and proposed thoughts and proposed solutions. Because we have found that 
even bad suggestions tend to bring out better suggestions. But if you start with an open question, that conversation may not go anywhere. But if I come in with a with an idea saying, how about we do this? Or Carl comes in with an idea and uh, he's coming at it from his business perspective, I'm coming at it from a product and engineering perspective, you can bet that there's another point of view that will have something to add to the on the solution that you've just designed. If I come at it from a very intuitive angle, Carl's going to come at it from the perspective of, but this is not what the users are asking for, or the platforms are asking for, but can we solve this related problem? And then the problem becomes slightly different. And then my team has to solve for that problem. Or my platform lead has the might have a suggestion saying, we've already built this solution and, and have it sitting in a parked in a branch. Why can't we leverage that to solve a similar problem? May not be the exact same problem or the exact same solution, but the impact of that solution would be much bigger and not just to the problem. It may not solve just the problem you're looking to solve, but two or three other issues as well. So those perspectives are kind of important. But at the end of the day, it's well understood that somebody in the room, uh, at this time me, has to take a decision on the final approach. The one thing that I think the entire team does well is even if that final decision or take on the solution is mine or Carl, or let's say my platform leads, everybody's good at taking on that decision and walking away and execute that, executing that function. So it's not necessarily group thought. It's more about the thinking process is shared by the team, but decisions tend to be made by one or two people who are best at that particular function. So if it's product, it's me. If it's uh, engineering, it's my platform lead. If it's UI, that we have a UI specialist. So it's very directed in that way. Thank you for, for breaking that out. And I think that creates a solid framework for people to learn from and apply, which is that you can use the team to develop a broader purview, but still have one person be accountable to the decision at the end of the day. So this idea of group thinking, it's a way of, as you say, spotting the blind spots that people miss and spotting the opportunities that other people can't can't see. So you have a much wider or high resolution perspective on the information in front of you, but then it still comes down to that one person ultimately to say, okay, we're going to go in this direction or we're going to, we're going to go there. So I like the breakdown that we've, we've got there on the topic of team dynamics and how you think about running Jozu. Something that really stuck out to me is that Jozu is a lean team, but you're not just a lean team. You've had people on your team that have worked with you pretty much since Jozu's inception. And that's quite rare. So I'd be interested to understand what you think you have done as either as a leader or as a company culture that's enabled you to attract and retain top talent over time? I've definitely, we've done things differently, but I think we've done things differently accidentally. It's not due to some vision or some strategy. I think it's just worked out that way. The two things that have emerged though, when I look back is one is the work has to be meaningful. I don't think anything can be more powerful than meaningful work. 
in our early days, and even now, some of our team leads are top engineers. They can probably walk into any of the growth stage startups or larger organizations and get paid triple the amount, no questions asked, because they have the skills, because they have uh, the perspectives, and obviously there's demand in the market as well. But they chose to stay on. So for me, it was more of a hindsight question saying, why are these amazing people still with us when the market has such demand for people like this, right? So one is we've always had meaningful work at Joseph. The fact that we are hyper-focused on education and even within education, we are hyper-focused on K-12 assessment. And even within assessment, we are hyper-focused on writing skills. Everybody in our team from, uh, from our testers all the way to the CEO really cares about the fact that I think only 20 to 30% of grade 12 graduates have the writing skills for college. And even within that, maybe 14, 15% of higher ed graduates have the writing skills for careers. So you're producing a community of people who are not able to write a thought-provoking essay at university or they're not able to write a persuasive email at the time of customer renewal. Those are real problems, right? We have a generation of tweet writers and worse, tweet readers, people who cannot hold a thought or read through entire essays. And that's not because of fault of their own. It's because writing skills assessment has been broken. The education system is not able to actually improve student learning. Now, when you combine a hyper-focused problem statement with deep application of technology, an opinionated application of technology and a particular set of skills, as Liam Neeson once put it, then you get a team that really, really cares about what they do because they have they know what they're solving. There's no vague, you know, don't be evil statement. It's like this is a specific problem. We're gonna keep solving that problem till we get to the end goal. And by the way, we are a profit-driven company. So here we're going to create a company that you know, it's product-driven and at the same time profitable. That mission statement is pretty spectacular. So the vaguer you're, what, what you're trying to do and the more, the more unopinated, I think the more churn you have. That combined with the fact that, again, accidentally, we basically landed into a way of team management that, that basically allows everybody to be their own boss. So when I stepped out of the way and when I started being more of a team player, and Carl obviously was already a team player, he's, he's an amazing leader, now people found that they have a voice, that their opinions matter and that any idea they had today might well end up in the product two weeks from now. So we have build cycles every six weeks and people could see ideas they had last month in the product this month. So if these two things, I think, are kind of key, way more than things like pay structure, points in the company, any of those. And obviously, most of our team are whole points in the company, right? So, But for them, I've always thought, I'm sure it matters, but I don't think it matters to them as much as the fact that they are part of a team that knows what it's working on. I think there's something, it took me a while to get my head around and it felt counterintuitive at first, but by planting your flag in the sand and saying all of the things that you don't stand for and that you have problems with, 
you actually attract the people who share those same sets of problems and the same set of values. And what I like about the problem statement that you articulated there is that number one, it's very relatable. So this generation of tweet writers and worse tweet readers is the issue, but then it digs into why that is happening. It's not the fault of the tweet reader, it's the fault of the educational system that can't support their learning outcomes and the writing assessment system that's broken underneath it. What's great here is that you have personified the technology that you're going to be using to solve it because people connect with people ultimately at the end of the day. We, we don't connect with software in that same way. And so when you're able to put a face and a name to a problem, it becomes that much more visceral and triggers our emotional brains to say, there's a, there's a human I can help here. And, and that kind of helps sharpen the spear of meaning to move your mission forward. That's exactly how I put it. So a couple other things I'm interested in chatting about Rakesh, and then we will wrap up and put a bow on this interview. So one of the things that you've shared previously the last time we spoke about your team is that you want them to be really good at what they do. You also said that we expect them to then go on and create more startups, which I thought was quite an intriguing phrase. Why do you want your team that are currently at Jozu to go on and create more startups afterwards? I've seen the outsized impact that good teams have had. So whether it's the usual suspects, Google, Facebook, but then even newer teams like Stripe, you know, the payment processor, you're seeing people come out of there who know how to hone in on a problem and then articulate an amazing product around it. When we started hiring our team uh, or our hiring process, even though we did not have a handbook for hiring or anything of that sort, we self-selected for people who are startup people, not necessarily just engineers, but people who would work well in a startup environment. So these are critical thinkers, empathetic, easygoing, so no prima donnas, but at the same time are able to take a stand and then have an opinion and then go execute that opinion. Now, I think if people leaving Jozu go and work for a bank, good for them, because then they have other priorities in life, good for them, right? I have no problem if you go become like a back-end developer in a bank. But we think these people now have a set of skills that would allow them to build yet another Jozu or something even more powerful and more impactful than Jozu. So it's wasted opportunity, right? Because they have spent four years at a growth level startup where you not just improved the way you code, but you, you, you learned how to build a product, how to take multiple shots at achieving product market fit. You have the inside track on how Carl is building a sales organization and like a marketing organization. And if you have all this knowledge and then one day when you have an idea, you ignore it and then just do some mundane work. That's just wasted opportunity. So I would love to see Jozu have an impact beyond just the company. Whether Jozu fails, succeeds, we get sold for a billion dollars or we become like a $5 billion company, whatever the outcome, I don't have enough hubris to think that these people will be forever at Jozu. I know that one day one of them will be bored and walk out. 
But when they do, I hope it's bored because they have a better idea and they want to go execute it. And when they do, they have like a really practice set of skills that they can use to kind of execute that and take that forward. And as I say this, the thing that I'm not able to convey to you is I'm seeing their faces. I know each one of them individually, and I know what skills they have. These are people close to each other. I know what they can do. So it's, it would be just wasted uh, brains if they go and do something mundane. That's a pretty beautiful thing to be able to say to someone on their first month of work saying, listen, I'm under no illusions that you'll stay with us forever. You're smart, you're talented, you have dreams of your own. And all I can say is I hope we equip you with the right skill set and knowledge and tools to be able to go and do something even more impactful yourself. This actually is very similar to what another guest from this season, Eddie Badrina shared, the CEO of Eden Green Technology. And he was saying that I hope to give or to pass on a little bit of the cultural DNA of Eden Green to my employees so they can go and take that forward into their next company. So I, I see it as a, it, it's the mark of an empathetic leader when you're able to put yourself in the shoes of the employees you have and realize that their dreams are much bigger than just your company, but you can still play a really powerful role in helping them achieve them by doing great work in the here and now at your enterprise. Yeah, fingers crossed, that's what we have achieved. A similar thing we say to our employees when they join is that Jozu, it's not become a cliche at Jozu, but we always say to people we're interviewing that we have two products, Jozu itself and the people we produce. And, and genuinely, I try to kind of measure myself to that goal. And I think everybody, all of our leaders also do the same. They kind of measure themselves to that goal. Uh, so fingers crossed, we achieved that. <laughs> I love it. I think that's uh, that's a great note for us to close on. And I have one last question uh, for you, which is actually going back to the meaningful work we've just touched on. So Josu's mission, for those of you listening who don't know, is to empower the lifelong learner inside every student. So my question for you, Rakesh, is what do you want to learn in the future that you haven't made time for yet? Let me take the most out there thing. I would like to go into theology. So something I would love to go and study religion, the practice of religion on a very broad level. So that's uh, out there interest that I keep coming back to. On the day-to-day, I'd like to be a more disciplined writer. So I would love to know how to write and communicate. Ben, you mentioned that you actually run an agency that, that helps leaders communicate better. And something I learned myself while working at Josu, the irony is, I think Josu is creating software that helps people communicate, that helps teachers and students, especially students, learn how to communicate better. But I find myself lacking in that aspect. aspect. So I would love to be able to learn how to communicate a thought succinctly and with maximum impact with that succinctness as possible. I, as this particular interview will show, there's a bit of rambling that I do, and I'm sure whatever I do, I could easily communicate with five fewer sentences. So that's something that I'd love to do. Cool. So understanding the uh, entire underlying structure of religion and then becoming a superpower communicator. So no small goals here. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) 
Awesome. Well, Rakesh, I have certainly learned a lot here. I think all of our listeners will as well. I appreciate you being so open and um, peeling back the curtain on Jozu today. If people want to find you online and keep up with your ideas, where can they follow your journey? I'm available on LinkedIn, uh, Rakesh Kamat. I'm on Twitter at The Fat Oracle. And uh, I can be reached by email, Rakesh at Kamat.ca. I do a lot of uh, mentoring as well. Again, an arrogant take because I'm not sure I know enough to be mentor to a mentor, but people early enough in the journey, I'm happy to kind of give a second year. Fantastic. Rakesh, thanks so much. This is a lot of fun. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate the call. Thank you. Hey, it's Ben here. Just before you head off, one quick thing. This podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication. And if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business, we've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees' heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, weareastutely.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.